Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Yale's Whitney Humanities Center presents Science Buildings Collaboration, a panel discussion considering Louis Kahn's Salk Institute and what makes buildings work for science. The panel was part of Intellectual Circles and 20th Century Science, a conference organized in conjunction with a series of events surrounding the 2008 Tanner Lectures on Human Values, delivered by Nobel Prize winning physicist Stephen Chu. Uh, I'm very grateful to, uh, and if any of you would like to cluster down a little closer, please feel free. Uh, um, I'm very grateful to the Whitney Humanities Center for including me in this uh, event. I am a thoroughgoing humanist, having studied something called history, the arts and letters, as an undergraduate at Yale. Um, it is gone, but the Whitney Humanities Center, under Maria Rose's direction, <clears throat> continues it in spirit. Uh, but listening to Dr. Chu last night, I was reminded of how very much I missed uh, as a student. And uh, it's events like these that give us such a rich opportunity to recover some of the lost ground on both sides of the two cultures. Certainly there's no better vehicle for studying these issues, uh, no better physical vehicle, I think, than the Salk Institute in La Jolla, designed by Louis Kahn. As you know, Kahn and Jonas Salk, the, um, uh, the spirit behind the uh, enterprise, shared a worldview. Uh, looking back from this perspective, it might seem a bit romantic, maybe even naive, but they deeply believed that we can make the world a better place by bringing science and art together. And in the development of uh, that institute, both in physical form and in um, intellectual and spiritual mission, I think they accomplished one of the great, great monuments of um, uh, American and indeed world architecture. I'm very honored to be joined by four people uh, on the stage here who are intimately familiar with the development of the Institute and its impact. Uh, I'd like to introduce them now, but I've been asked uh, first to remind them all that I have to be the timekeeper and make sure that <clears throat> we get some time at the end um, of the presentations to engage uh, among ourselves and also with you. Uh, we'll start be started off by David Brownlee, who's a historian of modern architecture and uh, whose interests embrace a wide range of subjects in Europe and America from the late 18th century to the present. Of course, uh, he uh, shared in the development with David DeLong of the landmark book on Kahn in the realm of architecture. And his other publications have included uh, The Architecture of the Philadelphia Museum of Art, Building America's First University, An Historical and Architectural Guide to the University of Pennsylvania, and Out of the Ordinary, Robert Venturi, Denise Scott Brown, and Associates. Uh, Carlos Wallenrat at the far end. Uh, comes to us from Princeton, where he joined the faculty in 1972, having been on the staff of Louis Kahn's uh, office as principal assistant during the design of the Salk Institute, the Bangladesh Capital Complex, the Palazzo dei Congressi in Venice, and the Yale Center for British Art, among others. Uh, Carlos was the founder, director, and president of the original Louis I. Kahn archive from 1974 to 78. And since 1975, uh, he's been senior designer and architectural consultant 
uh, with his own practice uh, involving public structures and residential uh, work and interiors. Reinhold Martin, next to Carlos, is uh, Associate Professor of Architecture and Director of the Master of Science Program in Advanced Architectural Design at Columbia, as well as a partner in the firm of Martin Baxi Architects, uh, and a founding editor, co-editor of the journal Gray Room. Uh, he's the author of Organizational Complex, Architecture, Media, and Corporate Space, and the co-author of Entropia and Multinational City, Architectural Interiors. Uh, he holds a PhD from Princeton, graduate diploma in history and theory from the Architectural Association, and a BARC from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Thomas Pollard, right here from um, Yale University, is the chair and Sterling Professor of Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology, and has been teaching here at Yale since 2001. He has a special interest in the molecular basis of cellular motility and uh, cytokinesis. I'm getting close, I think. You see how much I uh, need to recover. He's a member of the Institute of Medicine. Um, I've lost my space here. And uh, in 19, uh, 2004, the American Society for Cell Biology presented Dr. Pollard, uh, Pollard with its E.B. Wilson Medal for his discoveries concerning cell biology. From 1996 to 2000, he was president of the Salk Institute for Biological Studies, and from 1996 to 2001, uh, professor at Salk as well. Dr. Pollard is a graduate of Harvard Medical School and Pomona College. So let me um, step aside and uh, turn the proceedings over to David, who will uh, put the project in context. It's always exhilarating to talk about Lewis Kahn and the Salk Institute, <clears throat> but I'm outclassed today by those who have worked on Salk and worked at Salk, and so I only propose to, to offer some framing and I frankly would say cautionary suggestions about what we can say about making architecture to shape human institutions. That's not to deny, I'm, I'm sorry, this, and this is just a little bit at the beginning of, of Salk, of course. That's not to deny that I've been trying to explain the Salk Institute to anyone who would listen for quite some time. In fact, that's Jonas Salk with, I have to say, you identify for the unfamiliar, that's me a long time ago in 1983 when Salk visited the Kahn collection, the Kahn archive at Penn as it was just beginning to be able to receive visitors. It's important to say right at the start that Jonas Salk, having conquered polio, built the Salk Institute to heal the rift between what C.P. Snow had labeled the two cultures of science and the humanities. He saw the making of architecture as a part of this project, famously agreeing with Kahn that the new institute should be such a place that could entertain Picasso. And he built this institution for collaboration, in collaboration, with an architect who was similarly committed to building bridges between the, what he called the measurable and the unmeasurable building bridges with buildings that were shaped physically by the ideals of human institutions. To illustrate how Kahn said he worked and to introduce some of his ideas about designing for work, I'd like to look for a moment at the library of Phillips Exeter Academy that Kahn designed a little bit later than Salk. 
The architectural process, Kahn said, began with a rather abstract notion of the human institution, an abstract notion that he called, just to confuse things, form, which was reshaped, form was reshaped, as it confronted the exigent physical circumstances of the commission. And out of that was produced something that Kahn called design. The institutional form of a library, Kahn said, was defined by two sequential acts. The researchers fan out to find the, the books they want to read, and then each of them, book in hand, takes the book to the light to read it. For that form, Kahn devised a design with a great central common space for the readers in their collectivity, ringed first by book stacks, where each would find a book, and then by a perimeter of individual study carols bathed in natural light. It's important to highlight that this institutional form, the library, takes into account, albeit rather simply, both the community of readers and the individual reader. Um, the read and the architectural design has to serve both of them. Scientific research establishments are, si are similarly burdened um, and called upon to support the individual and the group and to define their relationship. This ought to be a central topic for us today. What Kahn and Salk undertook must be seen as part of a long and potent tradition of workplace design, both for the individual and the collectivity. Collaboration, making people pull together, so to speak, is not easy to achieve. It's hard to design a multi-oared ship, for instance. Um, and after you've designed it, it sometimes takes a bit of coercion to get the collaboration you require. But by the 19th century, architecture and social coercion had been perfected to create the factory, whose open architectural spaces and gigantic human communities were actually romanticized in the 20th century by modern architects. Here is Mises' concert hall, a photo montage on top of a picture of an aircraft factory, and Frank Lloyd Wright's Johnson Wax workroom, where the shop floor has become the open plan office. Now, there's an equally strong tradition of designing for individual work. In form and in concept, the monastic model is, the, is its ideal, and both Kahn and Salk embraced that ideal, the ideal of the monastery. The column-top accommodations of hermit monks, like St. Simeon Stylites, whom you see here a couple of times, uh, that, uh, that kind of arrangement is the ne plus ultra of the, of the monastic model. And keep in mind the little cabin that you see on the right for later reference. The individual workplace, too, was industrialized, if you will, in the 19th century in the solitary confinement prison in which work and reflection, uncontaminated by social interaction, was expected to mend people, more or less naturally. And that notion of individual work was in turn romanticized, and I'd have to say decriminalized, by garret-dwelling art, modern artists who moved into skyscraper penthouses when, the, when that form became available. Louis Sullivan taking up his office space above on the, on the top end of his own auditorium building on the left, George O'Keefe and, and Alfred Stieglitz moving into a penthouse in the, in the Shelton Hotel soon after it opened in 1925. Of course, not all inhabitants of these modern towers were hermits. And I think it's safe to say that the skyscraper emerges at least in, as the symbol of combined individual and collective work. 
I think that's what Wright had in mind when he added the research tower to Johnson Wax in 1950. This is clearly a significant model, a model form for the buildings that we'll be talking about today. Lewis Kahn wrestled with the problem of fostering individual and collaborative work several times, in two buildings notably, um, in the Richards Medical Research Building at Penn. It has a later wing, which I'll just, I'll just lump them together for this discussion, um, and then at La Jolla for the Salk. Both of the buildings are celebrated as works of architecture, but not equally celebrated as successful buildings for research. Of Richards, I think I can sum up by quoting just one representative opinion. Nowhere in the history of 20th century architecture, a scientist wrote in 1971, could one find a better example of an edifice which seriously impeded the progress of medical science. Having heard complaints of that kind for years, and almost equally passionate encomnia about the Salk Institute, it is surprising to see how similar they are. Richards, at the right, has 45 by 45 foot open plan labs stacked five tall in five towers, each ringed by servant spaces for ventilation and egress and attached to a facility for laboratory animals. Salk at the left has two three-story buildings uh, with 65 by 245 foot lab floors that are similarly ringed by servant spaces. If we set aside the fact that Richard suffered from air conditioning and, and sun control problems that resulted from cost cutting, the difference boils down to this. At Salk here, the floor plates are bigger and the servant spaces include separate studies for the research scientists, creating a clear dichotomy between group and individual space, which Kahn described qualitatively as a clean air and, a, and stainless area and a rug and oak table area. And here's a study and the lab. In Richards, by contrast, Kahn trusted that the scientists would imprint their own work patterns on their floors. They did. And the building opened in 1961 with a rabbit warren of corridors and small offices already in place, many suspended ceilings um, uh, as well. It is what the researchers made for themselves. And in fairness, not everyone has hated it. When I was uh, interviewed by our campus uh, alumni magazine uh, a few years ago about the architecture of the university, um, I offered the received wisdom that Salk was better than Richards. A student from the 1960s wrote in to protest what he called my silly-assed remarks. He rhapsodized about Richards, which, in which he'd worked for two years, and wrote, what an amazing place. The building had little tiny laboratories, cramped as hell, but but the hallways, you've never seen hallways like that. They were bigger than the labs. Dr. Britton Chance had the hallways lined with expensive equipment. Everybody worked in the hallways, so everybody got to know everybody. Scientists need all the intellectual stimulation they can get. We could take that as a warning, perhaps, about the limited value of user testimony. But I think the more important warning is about the limited importance of what architects call architecture when it comes to achieving success. On the one hand, there are user complaints about good buildings. The floor plates at the Klein Biology Tower on the left are too small. The lab spaces, though not the atrium, of course, at Bell Labs are too dark. Uh, and on the other hand, many modest buildings have, have incubated celebrated collaborative projects. ENIAC, the first large programmable computer, was built in a former musical instrument factory at Penn. The German military codes were broken in wooden sheds hastily erected around a Victorian country house in England. 
And of course, the Chicago pile of the Manhattan Project was built in the squash courts underneath the university's uh, abandoned football stadium. And in this slide, I would say that the abandonment of varsity football by the University of Chicago in 1939 was probably the greatest contribution to academic life made by sports at a university. Um, given, given those pieces of evidence, what are the meaningful differences between more and less successful research environments, taking Salk and Richards as our examples? And I think the relationship between the architect and the client is the chief thing, flat out. At Penn, Kahn worked for Norman Topping, an immunologist who was vice president for medical affairs. Topping left Penn in, in 1958 after the design for Richards had been set. He went on to be president at USC, and at USC he is celebrated as a transformative campus builder who created an effective environment for scientific research. But in Philadelphia, he seemed to have accepted Kahn's proposal of a cluster of research towers without, well, without comment, without making a contribution, without buying into it, without seeming to have much interest in the implications of that for the, design, for the community of scholars. The relationship, of course, between Kahn and Salk was just the opposite. Salk believed passionately in the marriage of art and science, as we've heard, and he shared Kahn's belief in the role that architecture played in making real the ideals of human institutions. Kahn's employees, it has to be said, thought that they saw rather too much of Dr. Salk. <clears throat> it's hard for me not to see the spirit in which the two projects were undertaken reflected in the different historical allusions that Kahn made in the two buildings. Richards resembles the fortified towers of an Italian hill town. I really don't want to make too much of this at Richards, given the vagueness of the brief to begin with, but I do think it's notable that, uh, that the archaic, lumbering forms that sheltered civic life in ancient Rome are alluded to at Salk. Illustrated here, the plan at the left, perspective at the bottom right, illustrated here, um, is the conference center, or what was called the meeting house, where Kahn and Salk imagined that Picasso and other artists and philosophers would convene with the scientists. I think, in fact, that this unbuilt part of the Salk project, alive in the minds of Kahn and Salk, and transferred by them to their collaborators, that this project almost alchemically defined how the two built laboratories that were built were conceived and used. That spirit symbolized by an unbuilt building, may be the most powerful determinant of Salk's relative success. As noted, the built part of Salk comprises two buildings, each with three floors of labs. Two of those floors are basements. They face a courtyard between them, and their facades as they face that courtyard are modulated by little towers, each of which has four studies, individual studies, built of teak panels like little wooden hermit's cabins inserted into the concrete frame. Paired <coughs> two to a floor in the towers, <coughs> excuse me, the studies are planned so that the hindmost of each pair can crane its neck and have its own view of the, of the Pacific Ocean. Inside is the rug and oak table environment that Kahn created for the individual scientists. He reported that it was hard to get them to leave their labs to come to these little retreats. Connecting the studies and the labs is a system of open stairways and shaded walkways with blackboards, that's what's on the lower right, on which to record the work product from unplanned collegial encounters. It's a beautiful thing, but remarkably modest in its actual form. 
However, I would argue that the spirit of the unbuilt meeting house, pointed out here by an arrow, it's the near thing and the perspective on the top, and there's the perspective of it again on the right-hand side, that the unbuilt meeting house planned for a location close to the sea, um, that it inhabits these simple spaces. They likewise draw life from the other unbuilt part of the master plan, housing for fellows and their families. This village-like community was to gather along a curved pedestrian street that followed the rim of the ravine that splits this institute site in two. Unbuilt, the village was at least emblematic of the fusion of work and life in a research environment. No such positive imagery, built or unbuilt, shaped how those who moved into the Richards Building in 1961 were, to, uh, were thought about their lives and their work. I think this highlights the responsibility of architects and clients to create ideas as well as physical things, or as Kahn would say, both form and design. Architecture, like poetry, is a matter of both structure and meaning, shapes and ideas. It is an idea that inhabits what is, in fact, the, the usually empty and manifestly functionless physical space of the Salk courtyard. The idea here is that of collaborative creativity, and Salk and Kahn knew that as potent as the shapes of the architecture were, the scientists would have to realize the idea for themselves. Thanks. So, it went like this. The young French architect climbed to the podium and said, ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce to you the American architect that knows everything about pipes. This was in Paris, in the Sorbonne, sometime after the completion of the research laboratories at the University of Pennsylvania the first half of it, the Richard building, you've seen some of it here. When Khan came back to the office, and as we often did after one of his trips, I asked, how was it? You know, we don't know anything about pipes. It was really nearly true that he or we knew the evolving complexities of systems of or engineering technologies was not only not quite the case, but it didn't have the allegiance or the determining strengths of a mathematical fact. He had, since the early 50s, concluded that if you didn't take care of those mechanical things, they would destroy the building. It was in their nature, and we better see it as our task to resolve the confluence of all those many parts. He had years before talked of hollow columns and hollow decks, and it came soon after that that he realized that the kind of claimed specificity structural engineering had gotten us accustomed to was not only not rigorously determinant, but of a different kind when it came to the systems installations. And it wasn't Richard where in more detail he came to conclude that there was a constantly evolving change, not only in the programmatic side of things, but on the evolving nature of the, mechanic, of the machine mechanisms. As we all were brought to believe Richards had a number of firsts 
to claim. But very importantly, it was, we were told, the first building or laboratory building without operable windows. What it meant was that the handling of the different kinds of airs, noxious, compressed, clean, vacuums, etc., would play a significant part new in its design. And you can see how he looked for specific, for specificity at different levels, sizes, how many of these, how many of that, what the air does back to nature, how it layers itself. There is specificity here of position of issues like pressure handled this way or that, high elements that would produce that negative pressure, how it actually dispersed. At the end, he set a generic housing for the deck, for the feeds and machines, generic both vertically and horizontally to add to the structural choice. Vertically, very unspecific towers and horizontal decks, another sort of version of that hollow deck he had done before. He used the Virendel Trust for that. He outdid Virendel. Virendel's own ill conception of that, and it seemed like Mr. Virendel didn't seem to want it for access or travel at 90 degrees to the plane of the truss itself. He had used that truss at AFL CIO Medical Services Building in Philadelphia, and he used it again to define the generic feed system. We have to realize what point of control that is bus ducts, air, wiring, trays, pipes, travel through and the lower court of the plane is the plane of support. And a little bit of Yale here. The chairman of the Department of Architecture here in your campus, there was no deanship yet then, before Paul Rudolph was, if I am correct, a man by the name of Schweiker. With the appointment of Rudolph, Schweiker went to become the dean at the then Carnegie Tech, Carnegie Mellon now. Knowing of the good reception Kant's labs at Penn were getting, he invited Kant to lecture. This was in Pittsburgh, of course. Sock had won the polymyelitis war as a researcher at the University of Pittsburgh. And that's where the rhesus monkeys lived. Someone whispered to Sock that the man who had just done those much talked about labs was coming. And he presumably squeezed into the back of the auditorium to listen. Some weeks later, Louis Bachelet, the secretary, got the phone call. Sock wanted to come to Philadelphia, meet him, and see the labs. And the sentence that closed that historical event went like this. Sock in front of Richards. Lou, how many square feet do you have here? Khan. Oh, around 100,000. Sock. 
That's about what I need. There were a couple of aspects of riches that had become or were to become a problem. The pipes that the Khan had fought so hard to, to keep exposed or say not to hide were collecting dust on top and they were very hard to clean, particularly in clean air room ceilings that started to appear. And some time later, they found that the corners of the square research studios, the structural cantilevers, allowed for some residual vibration, which made them inadequate for the installation of the then new laser tables. But Sark had a different observation. The square research studios were not flexible enough. Research units grew and contracted often and only flexible space could allow for that. It was the first time that Khan had, was confronted with the issue of flexible space. He had offered a tentative kind here at the art gallery with the use of the pogo panels, but that one might call maybe pre-Khan, Khan, by the time Sok came, Khan had already clearly started his forceful search for core-bound space as the central ambition. He was being asked to deliver open-endedness, a mathematical matrix with no specific bound defining core to search for. The conceptual framework, which so well had gotten him searching for a bound containment of very few variables, of man's expressive realizations, a place for assembly, a place for worship, a place for work, had represented a singularity described principally by those bound spaces. Yet perhaps because he could desire, he could devise other ways to define boundary by the line and boundary by element, now he brought himself to accept the cellular festival space as a part of a larger set of elements within the larger plan of the site. That got him to begin a series of projects where center gets bound elements, not edges, as boundary. Salk had positioned himself as not particularly in the camp of biologists, biologists or in the camp of clinical practice. Sok was an MD researcher, as you know. And he was an independent in many other ways. His victory of the polio vaccine had been financed by the National Foundation, the March of Dimes, and its director, Basil O'Connor, a classical politician in the Roosevelt's camp, promised and delivered $1 million a year for the development of whatever kind of institute SOC might want. This included design and the like. This gave SOC and gave Khan the ability to separate themselves from the conventional solutions. So it was out of the original conversations between SOC and Khan that the scope and program of the institute was defined. It was ambitious, and it had the makings of an institution of greatly original scope. They thought of it as going beyond biological research to represent the brothers of cultural programs. 
It wasn't that it should include people like Leo Szilard, the atomic scientist, or appoint Jacob Bronowski, the author of The Ascent of Man, as the first dry scientist in fact, but they would invite Picasso. Little would the world imagine that Sock would eventually marry Francois Gilot, the former early lover of the painter. Thus, the Program of the Institute would have three parts. The research laboratories, that we in the what we in the office call the big house, officially the meeting house, and housing for the scientists. The big house would have the Greek library, The science libraries would be yet left with the labs themselves. It would have conference areas, dining, gymnasium, temporary accommodations for visitors, the quiet and the noisy fountain, and an auditorium where the members of the institute and distinguished visitors would tell the general public of their work. Of course, only the labs was ever built. Then Kahn proposed four elements for the laboratories. Laboratory spaces themselves, the flexible kind this time, would be contained by scientist studies, here and here, exhaust towers at the edges, here and here, right and left, and administration quarters at the end towards the sea. After considerable sketches and arranging of parts and pieces, it was at a small summer cottage, Sock Hat in West Virginia on the coastal line of some lake area in some resort area, where at the end, the final section you see here was done and defined. Sock invited Khan and myself for the weekend. I carried the pencils, cardboard, knives. At the end of the weekend, we had a model that represented what is there now. The scientist studies were to alternate with the lab levels, these and these. The access porticos beneath them were to allow an interrupted view across the labs through the cord, that line, and that line. The lab section itself came after Kant's proposal that the mechanical spaces be a floor on its own so that changes in laboratory layout could achieve with minimal disruption to the laboratory areas themselves. In fact, Sock told us that he would have no less than a crew of 30 people doing nothing but changes, adaptations. We had gone to the CDC Communicable Disease Center in Atlanta to review plan and equipment types, to learn how bad their plans were, it seemed. And we went to the NIH in Bethesda to learn many things and to comply or not with their regulations, a set of rules which weren't made to be enforced but indispensable if you applied for federal grants later. And importantly, we learned there of the population of wild visiting mice coming to the building attracted 
by the smell of mice of much higher pedigree. NIH did not approve of Kant section until later, when the success of the building made them realize that they must add that solution to their only three sets samples of approved design criteria. In the mechanical floor, the usual Virendel truss came back, although this time with the help of a post-tension parabolic profile support, you see a little bit of this here, the kind of a structural complexity August Commandant, Kant's best engineer, enjoyed to expose engineers in townships and municipalities about how much they needed to learn. And of course, this time the Virendel was a full story high. The deck is set on a five by five grid with slots every other module with integral aluminum forms and a plate that allows for the mechanical connections without ever penetrating through the concrete. No one anywhere realizes the enormous counterpoint between the nightmarish system installations and the lyrical and peaceful face of SOG. This is a model done by students rather recently for one of my seminars as an inspirational building originally at the dramatic head of that ravine. 300 feet over the beach of the Pacific Ocean. Some of that peacefulness is going though. The building is being crowded all around, mainly by installations of the University of California with which the Institute had common advanced teaching and research programs. Within the site itself, the crowded condition already there and the plans for the future are and will damage the image of the char and character of many aspects. But the sensibility it should inspire hasn't and isn't always there, it seems. I'll mention one case. Some years ago, the Institute needed to build new animal quarters. So they did on the south side of the south building, somewhere under there. And to do it with a little sensitivity, they did it underground. And then, to reconstruct the land, they put soil above the top slab and planted grass. So now they have the terrain of the south side being mathematically horizontal and planted with high quality grass looking like a potting green. The dramatic ambient where you could sense the power of the exhaust towers against the beginning of the ravine had to go. Buildings deserve to expand, but plans for expansion cannot be done by the facilities department, even well-meaning architects. That's not enough. Those little specks there on the beach are actually Princeton students. And if you go to Princeton, you learn to fly. It all, at the beginning, happened between these and that. Thank you.
before uh, launching into a, a, a broader uh, sort of, let's say, kind of zooming out uh, into the question of the architecture of the laboratory more generally, um, I, I thought since we're in the context of a humanities center, um, uh, that to, you know, at a major university, that the research university, that the question of the university that really is at the heart of what a laboratory has been thought to be in the later part of the 20th century especially, um, is, uh, should be sort of highlighted. In, in, uh, in actually in 1798, maybe you know, that the philosopher Immanuel Kant um, wrote a very interesting little text called Conflict of the Faculties, uh, in which he divided the modern university, and Humboldt University was actually founded around this, this uh, idea, um, uh, between the higher faculties of law, medicine, and theology, which are essentially productive and oriented towards society, uh, and the lower faculties, uh, which at that time uh, encompassed really philosophy. Um, uh, and were oriented inward uh, towards a kind of more critical and reflective uh, posture. The question that sort of underlies my comments uh, this morning has something to do in, in that sense uh, with, with that of where both science and architecture might lie in, in this scheme as, it, as in a sense we've inherited it uh, at the sort of other end of modernity. Um, but uh, I do want to begin by emphasizing something that we might even call a scientific fact. Um, the, the fact is that buildings do not cause people to behave in a certain way, despite what architects would like to think. Um, they don't manipulate you, even though architects are always trying to manipulate you. In that sense, there's no, there's, there is no self-evident relation between the architecture of the scientific laboratory uh, and the work that's done inside and around it, whether it's solitary or collaborative in nature. But for the purposes of discussion, uh, it's worth noting that the alternative proposition, that the physical environment determines human behavior in some linear or, non, or even nonlinear sense, was in fact on the rise during the early 1960s when Lewis Kahn designed and built the Salk Institute. So you might even say that Kahn responded to this kind of emergent behavioralist proposition, which later in the decade would become a basis for the reform of schools, offices, public housing, and urban space, by attempting to reclaim a metaphysical dimension for architecture, kind of poetics, which in his eyes and those of many of his colleagues had been reduced, uh, architecture, modern architecture, had been reduced to a mere machine uh, by the dogmatic application of functionalist standards. An example of this incipient behavioralism in architecture that was built actually seven years after the Salk Institute as part of a kind of transatlantic dialogue with some of Kahn's other work, including Richard's, uh, was the central Beheer office building in Appeldoorn in the Netherlands uh, that was completed in 1972 by the Dutch architect Hermann Hertzberger. Hertzberger's attempt is significant uh, for its development of an architectural syntax based on interlocking clusters. Here's the plan, you see it? Um, which allowed the systematic interweaving of small-scale social spaces into the modular office landscape. Here's some of these, people playing chess. Um, uh, on the argument not only that ar the architecture of the office had to overcome the alienation implicit in, of the, in, in the uh, sort of gridded machine of the by, by then glass and steel office building that was typical, but also that intra-office sociability would increase productivity, so productive workers. Interestingly enough, at around the same time, buildings that were intended for scientific and technological research were being designed according to a similar idea. Among these, this is now the early 70s, among these was Xerox, Xerox uh, Palo Alto Research Center, Xerox Park, um, which you see here, designed uh, by the firm of Helmut Avada and Kassenbaum and completed in 1970. Xerox Park was organized around a series of terraced uh, interlocking clusters and courtyards, 
um, or here's the, the plan again, around which uh, were distributed informal conversation areas. That's sort of number five area in the plan, and likewise, that, or four or five, uh, and also these, these terraces outside. <clears throat> the idea was simple. These clustered clusters would form the social units out of which the overall laboratory was assembled. <clears throat> the, uh, under the assumption that the scientific and technological research uh, done inside was as much a social as an, in, as an individual activity. In that sense, these social spaces were not spaces, spaces of leisure or relaxation per se. Uh, they were spaces for the production of ideas. We've heard about that last night again with the blackboards uh, today. A fact that was confirmed by the late 1990s when I uh, happened to visit the building uh, by the addition of whiteboards in each cluster. Um, along in these clusters, along with a video camera focused on each whiteboard to record the innovative ideas that were expected to, to appear on them as a result of social interaction. So, you know, intellectual property and so on. Um, <clears throat> you know the story of Steve Jobs wandering into Xerox Park and stealing. Okay. So, during the 1990s in Silicon Valley, speaking of Steve Jobs, uh, the, the whiteboard-equipped lounge had been translated now back from the lab into the office uh, to become a kind of corporate cliché. Uh, appearing, for example, um, beside the clusters of couches uh, that were interspersed through ap throughout Apple's headquarters in Cupertino, and even um, on the whiteboard tops, you see this here, uh, of the coffee bars that punctuated the headquarters of Silicon Graphics in Mountain View, which has now, uh, you may know, been renovated to become the Googleplex. I don't know if these are still there, maybe somebody knows. Um, but my point in drawing these spaces to your attention is to, to suggest that in many ways they have their origin in earlier corporate buildings designed for scientific research. And these in turn constitute an important backdrop against which Kahn's efforts at SOC become intelligible perhaps in a different way. Most prominent among such buildings are a pair of research laboratories that, that were designed by the architect Eero Saarinen, uh, a Yale, I have to say Yale alum, uh, in the late 1950s, uh, just as Kahn was beginning to design SOC uh, and complete it uh, in the early 1960s. The first of these is the IBM Thomas J. Watson Research Laboratory in Yorktown Heights, New York, uh, completed in 1962. And the second is the, uh, yes indeed, the Bell Telephone Laboratories in Holmdel, New Jersey, uh, the second sort of Bell Labs that was completed in two phases, in fact, in 1962 and 66. Though on the outside, these two rather hermetic buildings might seem the apotheosis of the forbiddingly abstract corporate glass box that was so common in the 1950s, on the inside, they tell a different story. In both cases, Saarinen's model was actually the original Bell Labs complex. Uh, here, this is like in its original, original drawing, um, which was a campus-like like network of pavilions completed in 1941 uh, in Murray Hill, New Jersey, by the firm uh, of Voorhees, Walker, Foley, and Smith, who are also the architects of many other important laboratories. But the interesting thing is that at both at the new, new Bell Labs and at IBM, Saarinen quite systematically turned this original Bell Labs plan inside out. Here's the new one. Um, <clears throat> Rather than lining the building's exterior with offices and laboratory spaces uh, in a kind of double-loaded corridor um, scheme, in both of these uh, plans, this is the IBM, uh, they were now arranged al along interior hallways going up and down, uh, in this case, um, with no direct access to natural light or views of the surrounding landscape. Uh, here's a Bell Labs uh, lab. 
Instead, such pleasures um, were reserved for the building's social spaces. Here you see the, the corridors in Bell Labs leading out to the, to the, to the outside uh, perimeter corridor. Um, the long circulation corridors that, that running along the perimeter, and this is, this, to, to show you, this is a, a model. Here's your sort of prototypical scientist. Uh, um, and you can see the sort of emphasis, the, the, the kind of rhetorical emphasis even, uh, that's placed on the kind of stroll around the perimeter and, and inside. This is Sarin in studying the building. At IBM in particular, um, here is the actual corridor at IBM, Sarnin imagines scientists strolling casually up and down the building's gently curved exterior wall, taking a break from the intense concentration required by their work to enjoy the view, much like a university professor might take a relaxing stroll across a campus. In both buildings, this perimeter stroll was punctuated by spaces to sit down and relax in a piece of Sarnin designed modern furniture uh, at Bell Labs uh, in the um, a rather uh, enormous glass atrium around which the entire complex was arranged, and at IBM in the, <clears throat> in the library and lounges uh, in, inter that were interspersed along the building's length. These lounges and the wide corridor to which they were attached were not just add-ons to some pre-existing laboratory type or typology. They were the, actually the logical conclusion of Sirenin's inversion of the sort of original Bell Labs type under, that under the ideological guidance of a proposition that scientific research was a form of labor comparable to office work. As such, it was thought that the more opportunities researchers were given to relax and to contemplate the fruits of their labor in an introspective ma manner and to discuss their work with their colleagues, the more productive they would become. So here's the architect trying to manipulate you. Now, empirically speaking, this was a kind of science fiction. Um, and in, in, that, in the sense that it says as much, at least as much, about how we imagine science and the work done by science uh, as it does about scientific uh, research itself. Uh, and, and this is what I really want to, want to emphasize, is that architecture works at least as much here and, and in any other situation at the level of the cultural imaginary uh, as it does in real practical uh, kind of mechanical terms. In this case, it also means uh, that, that scientific research is articulated with other types of work, especially in the context of the so-called big science in which Sarinans, labs like Sarinans uh, belong. Beginning with the famous Hawthorne, Hawthorne experiments in the late 1920s, various corporate efforts to improve productivity through, through environmental enhancement had yielded mixed or ambiguous results at best. But environmental determinism was a useful fiction nonetheless. In this respect, it was, all, it was also only a short step from Sarinen's internalization of the campus walk in these plans to Kahn's monumentalizing of the spaces of contemplation at the Salk Institute with its monastic screen of offices wrapped around a poetically empty courtyard and backed up by the rather more utilitarian arrangement of the laboratory spaces themselves behind. So to see Kahn's diagram at Salk here uh, as belonging to the genealogy that I've just sketched out uh, is in part to demystify, I have to say, the otherwise impenetrable quasi-poetic haze in which the building is often cloaked. But it's also to reframe the question, and in a sense to respect that, uh, that poetics, um, to reframe the question of architectural meaning uh, that is so clearly posed by this building and by Kahn's work in general. So finally, in conclusion, uh, to open up this, uh, this question, uh, with respect to the scientific laboratory, again, more generally, 
I invite you to fast forward again uh, quickly to the 1980s and early 1990s um, and to a series of laboratories, only one of which I'll show, designed and built by Kahn's most distinguished, if prodigal, offspring, uh, Robert Venturi, in collaboration with his partners uh, John Rauch and Denise Scott Brown. Most prominent among these projects is uh, the Lewis Thomas Laboratory from, for Molecular Biology at Princeton uh, University, uh, completed in 1986. The Princeton building was a variation of what Kahn had described at Salk as the separation of the measurable space of the laboratory from the unmeasurable symbolism dedicated to the external social collective that we've heard about. Um, but it's done a little bit differently here. Venturi described this laboratory in rather prosaic terms uh, as a generic loft building that was designed for maximum flexibility uh, with a patterned facade adjusted to the visual rhythm rhythms of the adjacent campus buildings. But again, at either end of the building's rectangular volume, the plan, um, were small informal lounges. This is the most prominent one. Um, intended to encourage social interaction among researchers so that they might better share their knowledge in a field that only exists by virtue of its interdisciplinary linkages. These, along with many of the other details of the building's exterior, uh, sorry, interior, were executed by Venturi and Scott Brown in keeping with the user-friendly iconographic accessibility uh, as a, a kind of against, uh, distinguished from Kahn's abstraction, um, which, which, with which the firm had become, uh, about which the firm had become known. Uh, this is one of their exhibitions that sort of demonstrates uh, this orientation, a, a different kind of language, uh, a different mode of expression for architecture. Unlike Kahn's ponderous concrete walls, these surfaces uh, here at, uh, at Princeton uh, carried a rhetorical straightforwardness that Venturi described as, quote, accommodating a permanent ambience uh, which anticipates the comfort of the familiar. This was in contrast to the relative neutrality of the laboratory spaces themselves, which were flexible sheds designed to anticipate changing needs in a clutter of creative action, analytical, intuitive, and physical, as the architect said. That, I have to add, uh, was, interestingly enough, no different from the clamor of inscription, of note-taking, report writing, labeling samples, compiling data, inputting that data into computers, which only in output more data, and so on, that the anthropologist and historian of science, Bruno Latour, working together with his colleague Steve Woolger, found so important in the social construction of scientific facts in a very interesting study of what they called laboratory life uh, conducted at the Salk Institute in the mid-1970s. So this is an illustration from Latour and Woolger's book, which maybe, maybe you know. Thus, at Princeton, uh, specialists in the various life sciences could intermingle in a soft, com comfortable uh, Venturi-designed window nook uh, and theoretically discuss their work. But again, to what end? <clears throat> to be sure, this was an extension of the, the new behavioralism, uh, where for knowledge workers in particular, leisure and sociability were, new, were understood as sort of new forms of production. But it was also something else. Aesthetics and techno-scientific knowledge, so in other words, Kant's uh, two faculties, the sort of philosophy faculty and the sort of productive faculty of, of techno-science, um, are inseparable in this and other Venturi design laboratories in the sense that the building exhibits images of a comfortable domesticity over and above the functionality of its generic laboratory spaces. In that sense, uh, building as they do on the precedent set by Kahn, Venturi's laboratories traffic primarily in cultural meaning and only secondarily in the utility promised by the model, this model of informal collaborative research around which they were built. 
More specifically, they translate a reassuring domesticity and an iconographic playfulness into the realm of a scientific imaginary that, uh, that was and remains otherwise beset by a kind of identity crisis brought on by the, by the mixtures of profit, power, and metaphysics practiced daily in the laboratories of big science. So if Kahn's poetics attempt to recover a sense of metaphysical belonging, a kind of monumentalized being in the world for science and for scientists, Venturi's architecture takes this one step further by bringing the scientific laboratory, to the scientific laboratory a familiar, fragile image of a home, uh, a reassuring, if slightly surreal, domesticity uh, that in the case of these and other laboratories um, supports what is in fact uh, a rather disorienting postmodern science presided over by nature-culture hybrids with interchangeable names like Genentech and Genzyme. In other words, science fiction. Thank you. Okay, I'm, I'm Tom Pollard. I'm a biologist. Uh, I'm a professor here at Yale, and I was president of the Salk Institute for uh, four years in the late 1990s. So I have different perspective on the, the building than my colleagues here, and I've actually learned quite a few interesting things, many of which I suspected about the way the building was put together, but no one had ever confirmed for me like some of you have done here. So I'd like to share with you uh, my perspective as a user of the building, which I uh, feel was, has been extremely successful. Now, if you go to Google and, uh, and uh, Google a Salk Institute uh, photograph, uh, you get uh, literally hundreds of uh, photographs that look like this one. Uh, and they're, they're fantastic in every season of the year and time of the day and so on. Uh, and I looked through more than 2,000 of these images yesterday afternoon and did not find a single photograph of the inside of a laboratory at this uh, building. But that's where actually where the scientists live, so I'd like to uh, comment on that. It's a, a sort of an interesting commentary on civilization that all the pictures are, in fact, of the outside of the building. Uh, and, of course, the striking thing about this courtyard in, in virtually every single one of these pictures is that it's empty. And, in fact, it is empty almost all the time. I think the people who take the pictures like to have this uh, open, uh, you know, sterile, pristine uh, view of the place. Occasionally, you see people walking back and forth. Uh, you actually can find quite a few pictures on, on the web of the, the studies, which we've heard some about today. Uh, this, in fact, was my study during the time I was there, and I enjoyed, you want to see where it is, folks? Right there. That one, right there. Um, uh, it, uh, truly a lovely uh, place to have an office. Uh, much discussed are the blackboards. Here's one of the blackboards, and I, I, I have to apologize to the people who designed the place. They were actually never used. I never once saw any writing of significance on these blackboards. There was somebody who'd written a bunch of things on that, uh, one of these blackboards that were present when I got there in 1996, and the same things were still on the blackboard when I left in 2001. <laughs> but most of them were blank, like this one. And, and yet I have the greatest, so these are some of the things that architects like to talk about. Uh, you know, the monastic offices, the beautiful courtyard, the blackboards, and the, uh, you know, the ventilation system and things like that. But I, I liked uh, working at Salk Institute uh, for other reasons. 
So let's take an aerial view of the Salk Institute here and try to find the things that actually turned out to be important for the people who worked there. Uh, so here you see the uh, courtyard in the middle. This must be late in the after, in the deep of the winter, because there's a big long shadow here coming from the south. Uh, this is the uh, south, and that's the north building up there, and this is the courtyard in the middle. And these are the two new buildings, which are actually fantastically successful, uh, but objected to very much by the people who, many of the people who designed the building in the first place. So let's try to find the most important parts of the building here in this picture. And the first most important part, which is right over here. And out of the 2,000 pictures I looked at in Google, I found one picture uh, that, that illustrated why, why this is the most important part of the building. This is over the edge of the courtyard. You can see the courtyard is up at the top here. And the beautiful little uh, stream that comes down the middle of the courtyard comes over these two waterfalls and ends up in this pool down here. Uh, and at the foot of the, of the uh, waterway is uh, a patio which has about 20 ta uh, tables surrounded by six or eight chairs. And this is the equivalent of the canteen at the MRC lab in Cambridge that Steve Chu talked about yesterday. This is the place where the scientists, including the younger scientists who are graduate students and postdoctoral fellows, and right on up through the most senior member in the faculty, would be most likely to run into each other because we all ate lunch here. Now, uh, San Diego is fantastic because you can actually eat lunch here outdoors virtually every, every day of the year if you wear a warm jacket. It's actually the coldest place I ever lived. New Haven's much warmer in the summertime, for example. Uh, but this, this actually was the most important part. So I'd be interested uh, from, in terms of socialization. So I'd be interested to hear from my colleagues here on the stage what they thought this was going to be used for because this turned out to be uh, key to the success of the laboratory. Now this uh, courtyard extended, it's down at the end of this corridor here, extended uh, on the lower level of the building into all these fabulous little spaces uh, outside of the, uh, the underground labs down here. Sunlight would come in through these uh, large uh, holes and, uh, <clears throat> and light up this uh, courtyard and uh, penetrate into the labs here. And these little meeting spaces were actually also uh, quite valuable and used much more than the central courtyard just in terms of socialization and, and interactions. Now, I'm, I'm emphasizing interactions because at least in my experience in science, and I expect it's Steve Chu's experience as well, the key element uh, in, in interactions is simply collisions with your colleagues. You simply have to collide with your colleagues or be able to see them at some distance so you can chase after them and, 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 uh, and uh, collide with them there. And these spaces make that possible. Now the other important part of these buildings is uh, shown here. That is the two uh, laboratory spaces. Uh, and for every 10 pictures of the ventilation, for every 100 pictures of the ventilation, there are zero pictures of what's actually inside that space where people work. So let's take a look at that. <clears throat> so I've got this uh, label on here. Scientists actually work here. This is a view into some laboratories from, from outside. This is the interstitial space up here and down here, the much glorified in interstitial space. And on the outsides of the actual labs, these beautiful floor-to-ceiling windows that allow you to see all the way through the building. This is perfect for, for collisions and interactions because you can walk down this outside uh, uh, walkway next to the labs and look in and see all your friends. And if you see one of them, you want to share an idea with them, you can step in through the door and uh, right there and, uh, and uh, let them know what you're thinking. Now, we've seen this. Uh, uh, 
photograph before. Uh, let me emphasize uh, what this is. This is one of the laboratories. There are six of them that look exactly like this. And uh, the uh, surface area here is not quite as big, but almost as big as a football field. These are really big spaces. The uh, two walkways are over here on the right and over here on the left. And of course, with nothing in here, you can see straight through the building. Now, in the actual realization of the, of the laboratories, uh, in many, but not all cases, this sight line across the building has been maintained, uh, which is absolutely essential for not only bringing light into the, the core of the building, but also for favoring chance encounters because you can actually see your colleagues. Another thing that's important to realize is that you can stand at this end of this building and see somebody uh, 245 feet away down at the other end of the building and, uh, and improve your chances of interactions. So here is the layout of the building we saw in the previous talk. Uh, up at the top are the, uh, the uh, uh, studies for the faculty and down at the bottom is this big space. Now, until today, I didn't actually know how this big space, the labs, had, uh, had, had uh, been developed. And I was very happy to hear that Jonas Salk had something to do with this because that had been my suspicion, but I'd never met Jonas Salk, so I couldn't ask him the question. So what did Jonas Salk and Louis Kahn and the others working on the project do with this space? And what they did was actually the most important architectural decision that I made, that they made, in my opinion. And that is they divided this space up into longitudinal elements in the building, which we can see color-coded here. On the outside of the wet labs, and the inside is the support space. And uh, the most important thing here are these two ghost quarters, one there and one there, that run all the way from one end of the building to the other. So in the picture we looked at on the previous slide, the photo photographer was standing right here and looking down to the other end of the building. And, and on some but not all of the floors today, you can stand in this place and see all the way down to the other end of the building. I have never seen uh, such a perspective in another science building, something 250 feet like, long like that with a, a clear sight line. It's, it's more like an airport in terms of its uh, size and the sight lines in it. And so this, this is absolutely fabulous because what this means is that the inhabitants are actually mixing with each other and seeing with each other not only across the building where there are frequently uh, wide open sight lines across here, which I have not drawn in, uh, but also these beautiful sight lines down the middle. And of course, I already mentioned that the walkways around the outside, next to the floor-to-ceiling glass walls, let everybody see in and out to see what's going on. Now, the offices are shown, or the, the studies are shown up here in blue. Uh, and uh, the, uh, those who conceived of this uh, design probably are unhappy with what actually happened here because the offices actually migrated into the lab space. So I've shown here in blue, I hope you can see it, uh, some randomly positioned small offices that are much smaller than the studies where the faculty, the scientists on the faculty, actually spent virtually all of their time. Now, we'd retreat occasionally into the studies if we're writing a research grant application or something like that. Uh, but in fact, people mostly spend their time in these offices that are embedded in the wet lab space. And the reason for that is that they want to be in constant contact with their colleagues in the lab so that the door is open and they can run in and out and they don't have to run up a flight of stairs into one of those forbidding uh, monastery-like places where you were supposed to be contemplating. They want to be in the center of the action. It sounds a bit like the Steve Chu's experiences at the Bell Labs. 
Now, uh, the reason I think that this concept was important was not only that it made a beautiful place for people to work effectively at, at Salt, but it also has had a huge effect on the design of laboratories uh, in the present day. So here we have in the Chronicle of Higher Education from 2004 a headline saying, Revolution in Lab Design. Well, I don't know where they were for the last 30 years, but the, what you see here is basically the lab layout you have in the Salk Institute. This is the University of Michigan. Here's the ghost quarter. On the right, you see the wet labs. There are windows over to the right. And on the left is the support space in the middle. Uh, and uh, I still think this is the, the best um, way to lay out a, a modern biology lab. There are many reasons for this. One of them is that the size of the, the working groups are not constant. They're varying uh, with time on a fairly rapid scale of months to years. And the borders of the lab have to be flexible. So uh, at one point, uh, maybe Steve Chu's group is on this bench, and at the next point, his person leaves, and uh, my person needs some place to work, so he just lets me migrate over from the adjoining space and use that space. Now, uh, you can't imagine how many universities in the United States have failed to manage their laboratory space because they didn't have that option, that it was first provided at the Salk Institute and by this new open lab design. I visited universities where the number one complaint of the faculty was the inflexibility of the rabbit warren they were living in, so they couldn't actually adjust the size of their research groups from uh, time to time. And people even you know, leave their institutions because of that, because their neighbor maybe isn't so successful, uh, doesn't actually fill up and use their space fully. But in this lab design, uh, everybody has to play ball because you can see if the lab next door is empty and you can move into their space if, if uh, you have a, a growing program. So this uh, concept of this layered uh, laboratory with the lab, wet labs on the outside and the uh, ghost quarter and the support space has been used many, many times. And in our new biology building here at Yale, designed by Cesar Pelli and his colleagues, we're using exactly the same layout that, uh, that is used at the Salk Institute. Uh, so here is the outside of the building. Here are the wet labs. There'll be windows on the outside. Here's the ghost corridor. And here's the support space. Now, those of you who are familiar with Salk may be interested to see how much support space we have in this building. At Salk, it was uh, less than a third of the space. It was probably 25% of the space was support. Now it's more than 50% of the total space is support space because all of us have acquired a lot of hardware, instruments of one sort or another. And uh, in, in order to house them, you need vastly more space. You'll also notice, since I've used the same color code here uh, as I used for the, or Caesar used that same color code here that I stole to put on the Salk diagram, uh, the, the offices are embedded in the wet labs because that's really the thing that works the best. And those, those romantic monastery, monastic offices, the studies of the Salk Institute are still a terrific idea. And those of us who work there enjoyed them from time to time, but they're really highly underutilized. Now, one question I'd like to put to our colleagues here, just to finish up, uh, not being a professional architect, I've always been curious about why the SALT building was so successful uh, in terms of the laboratory space and the, the, uh, the whole concept, and why my friends at the University of Pennsylvania are so incredibly unhappy about the Richards building. Uh, now, I can verify that they're unhappy in spite of the, uh, the pushback you got from one of the, your readers, uh, because twice I have re been the chair of an external review of the department that lives in this building. And uh, both times, they, they had the same problem. 
the design, which I have done some injustice to here, this isn't what it really looks like, has, a, has a, uh, uh, elevators and stairs in the middle and labs around the outside and animals is one of the components around the outside of these four towers which project out of the screen here. And the, the fundamental uh, difference between the Salk open lab layout and this one is that this basically separates the, the people. So you can't actually see the people of the other module on your floor, number one. And number two, there are several floors and you can't see the people on the floor below you or the people above you. And that's, that's why the, the uh, uh, Salk Institute has been so successful has become the model for uh, virtually every modern biology building. Thank you. Thank you all. Uh, this is absolutely fascinating. And I'm, I'm also very happy with the sequence uh, that Tom came at the end to say, well, here's a user and uh, here's what I think. And I must say that uh, I was worried about your presentation because I thought you were going to say that it really is awful after all. <clears throat> but your, your analysis of, of this um, struck me um, because it seems that Khan actually has succeeded in this building on both levels, that he's taken care of us art historians and humanists who love to take the pictures of the studios and the open plaza, and yet you guys are actually able to get some science done. So he's serving, uh, perhaps inadvertently, but I rather doubt it. I have a feeling he knew exactly what he was doing, and perhaps Carlos can inform us on that. Um, but uh, the, the idea of the sight line, which is so important in the, in the Exeter Library, uh, is also obviously a component of this. Um, I just wondered if I might invite a comment from from uh, Dr. Chu here, who is uh, also a user um, and who set us off on the path with the wonderful discussion of the interaction at, uh, uh, at the Bell Labs last night. The cafeteria image, I think, is the one that remains with us all. Very interesting, the comments. Um, Bell Labs, Mary Hill, the corridors, I think we're a little over a quarter mile long. The very long corridors, uh, the offices and labs, they had a glass window on the top. So every time I walked to the corridor on the way to lunch, you'd be looking this way and that way, see, you know, and you'd knock if someone's in, hey, come, come go to lunch and things like that. So a very, very similar sort of thing. At, then I spent four days, four years at Homedale where the structure wasn't as good because it was this long rectangular building. The corridors were these little short guys. And if you wanted to go to lunch, both had fabulous cafeterias, you both ate there, that you would go out of the corridors and then the big corridor and there you could no longer see who's there. And so the ability to see who's there was a big deal. And when we designed the BioX Center, the Clark Center, it's all glass wall. There was a wide open space. They cut it a little bit because fire marshals said you had to do this. So I'm, I'm wondering whether it's all <laughs> to be cut. But it, very long pods, um, no walls. And it was exactly what you said, that uh, you, if you had empty benches, your neighbor would ooze over into those benches. And it was this constant flux. The offices were put in with the uh, postdocs and students exactly. They were embedded there. There were these little things put in there. No, no, nothing separated out. So a lot of the elements that I heard of today uh, that were, you thought were successful were, were in the Bell Labs buildings of long ago, uh, purposely designed in, in the BioX building. Um, 
the key, though, is uh, the cafeteria. Unfortunately, at Stanford, there are many other places to eat. <laughs> and it, it's always better to have a captured, <laughs> a captured area. But at least the, the, the cafeteria was nice enough, so it did draw a lot of people. Great. Thank you very much. I'd, I'd like to ask Carlos to get in on this here, because after all, you were in on the design. And how sensitive do you think Khan uh, was to these issues that uh, we're now exploring about interaction and the production of good science? I think, in fact, it was in Kant's mind that the building doesn't a building outdoes what people think is the proper use at the time it's built. And in that sense, I think, I feel it is important to decide that architecture is not the answer to a program which is specific, coded, numbers, and this and that, but it has to be something beyond. And I think, of course, SOC does that, but I think it was in Kant's view, though, that the, the, what we can think it is the demand, it will be old in 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and the building will not. And to that degree, I feel that the fact that he was doing laboratory building was rather curious. He wasn't an expert. Uh, we, we had to learn a lot of things very quickly and so forth. And I think the one time that he really was trying to be very, very much of an expert and answer to the scientist's needs is one he did less well, which is Richard's, in fact. The vibration on the corner pieces, the lot of things that were actually totally new. And you also have to realize that the newness then had to do with installations, with systems. I mean, people don't remember that uh, in 1958, 59, induction units were being experimented with. There wasn't anything yet that would respond to the demands that today we have. So how long does a building last? And in that sense, I have to say a little bit, I sh you will forgive me this, a little bit tired by hearing that people were not satisfied that the program didn't quite respond to a listing of 150 requirements. I don't think that does make any great building. And I think, and I have to say that Khan wasn't going after great, making a great building. He simply was going after making a building. The things we do to extend the sort of continent of our life and endeavors. And in that sense, it's got to be beyond. It's got to be beyond anything you can list. It's, it's got to be beyond anything you can have numbers for. So I, I think, in general, he did very well. The building. I think, I think the uh, the um, condition of having um, all kinds of lateral disciplines, technology territorial things and so forth, it isn't yet what you want to do. And I don't think it's done very often, and I think Khan succeeded sometimes. Sometimes he quite got close, but not enough, and all of that. But that's oh, so Let, let me goal. just interrupt for a moment, because when yeah. you say getting close, I think that any of us, no matter what we're doing, got that close is, is quite an achievement. 
Intellectual Circles and 20th Century Science took place on October 31, 2008 at the Whitney Humanities Center. Accompanying events, including Stephen Chu's lectures entitled The Epistemology of Physics and Scientific Revolutions and Golden Eras of Scientific Institutions, and a concert, The First Vienna Circles, featuring songs and chamber music by Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, and Schubert, are also available as netcasts. Please visit the Whitney Humanities Center website to download.